Oh, dear Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for Paul. Thank you, gosh, that we've gotten to just learn so much about him and his life and all that he went through, um, especially today with him just being under guard and in prison for two years, Father. We um, hope that you will teach us today what it is you want us to hear from your word through Carolyn as she speaks to us that you just are present amongst our midst. We thank you that you do never leave us or forsake us, that it is you, God, that we can put our trust in, that your, your hope, our hope is in you, and in that hope you provide us the joy and peace that we need through our own journey here on this earth. So we thank you for today. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Karen. Morning. Well, 24 weeks we've walked through the book of Acts. And I don't know about you, but it's been really transformative for me, both in terms of my understanding of Paul and uh, my, my grasp of much of the rest of the New Testament, which Paul wrote. Um, we have four weeks left, and then the last week we'll have, the, the fifth week we'll have a, our closing brunch. And I'm delighted to tell you that uh, Becky Garner will pick up the baton from me next week and um, teach you for the last four weeks. I think you have something to look forward to there. And so um, just want you to know that that's, the, that's our concluding um, leader. Becky's one of our teaching leaders. Have you ever read a novel in which the main character was in so much trouble with so many people so many times. I mean, this is like, um, you would think this would have to be fiction in order for this to, all this stuff to really happen, but it is reality for Paul. So just consider the last few chapters of Acts that we've looked at after Paul gets back to Jerusalem. Um, he comes back there, uh, I don't know whether he might have thought he might have some time to rest after all these many miles of travel and preaching the gospel of Jesus all over the place. Maybe, you know, he'd come back and he could kind of hang out with his friends in the church there in Jerusalem and share with them all the good things that God has been doing in his life. It seems to me he kind of deserves a break, don't you think? Not so. Only seven days after his return, Paul is nearly killed by a mob of angry Jews. The next thing he knows, he's rescued by Roman soldiers. And by the way, isn't it interesting how God uses even the secular authorities in this chronicle, even those who don't know him? Side, side note. So he's, he's rescued by Roman soldiers. He's escorted out of the city of Jerusalem in the dead of night by 470 soldiers because there's a plot against his life and the Jews are wanting to ambush him. He's taken undercover to Caesarea, which is the Roman headquarters in Judea. And last week, we left Paul under guard in Herod's palace. So now what? Well, Karen read what happens next. Now it's more accusations, and Paul must defend himself again. You'll talk at your table about the accusations that are made, 
and about how Paul responds to those accusations, I'd just like to call your attention to the manner in which Paul defends himself and see if we can learn something from his behavior and his demeanor. He doesn't allow himself to be caught up with the lies and the misinterpretation and the... um, mistaken accusations that are made. Um, He, not only that, he's characterized, some of the wording here is really interesting, he's characterized by Tertullus, the lawyer, as a troublemaker. Actually, the word more accurately is translated a pest or a pestilence. Uh, You know, this guy is like a disease among us. Um, and he's also called a, um, the ringleader of a cult. These are insults. So it's not only lies, but it's insults. Have you ever experienced such disrespectful treatment? The, the natural instinct that most of us have when we're treated this way is to want to dish out what we've been given, right? Respond in kind. So often the discussion is doomed before we ever start because we get caught up in the storm of emotions and we don't think straight. And Paul resists that. And the other thing that interests me is that Paul says at the end of his um, uh, defense that he speaks to them, he stands before them with a clear conscience. We saw him say the same thing last week. He hasn't done any of the things of which he's accused. And so he doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to manipulate the things he says. He doesn't have to shade the truth, as we said, talked about last week. That's quite a wonderful thing to be able to do. Don't you wish that our public figures could stand before us and say, I come to you with a clear conscience. But then again, wouldn't it be nice if we could? (laughs) We're so often preoccupied with our concern about being perceived in a certain way, aren't we? Paul just doesn't, he doesn't seem to fall into that trap at all. Well, the trial that we're focusing on, I've got a squeaky floor, I've got to move my... Thing here. See if I can escape that squeak. That's better. The trial we're focusing on today is presided over by Felix, the governor of Judea. This is a pretty interesting character in history. Uh, he and his brother Pallas, that's P-A-L-L-A-S, these two brothers were born and raised as slaves to Antonia, who was the mother of the emperor Claudius. And in Roman households, there was often a, um, a kind of a close relationship between slaves and their owners. Often the slaves were given considerable responsibility. Pallas, Felix's brother, was a special favorite of Antonia. And so for whatever reason, just maybe because she really liked them, maybe because they served her well, she gave them, both of them, their freedom. They were no longer slaves. Felix then rose through the ranks and eventually became governor. Never before 
had a freedman held such a post, a man who had once been a slave. Then Felix married Drusilla, a Jewish woman who um, was married to somebody else. She, he seduced her away from her husband. And as a matter of fact, she was his third wife. Contrary to the flattering remarks that the lawyer Tertullus makes about Felix in this chapter, Felix's reign was marked by lawlessness, revolts. In fact, the, emperor, or the uh, historian Tacitus called Felix a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Not your um, glowing biography, right? I'm fascinated. You'll talk at your tables about the trial. I'm fascinated about what happens after Paul's trial. Paul's under house arrest, which is strange, since it's obvious that none of the accusations made against him hold any water. But Felix holds on to him, even though he should have been released. And a few days later, Felix and Drusilla send for Paul. Now, immediately, what do you want? What, why? What, what are they calling Paul in for? Maybe Drusilla hadn't been at the trial. She hear, heard Felix talk about this guy, and she was curious, wanted to see what he was about for herself. Maybe Felix wanted to mo- know more about this faith that Paul represents. We're told in the text that Felix knew quite a bit about the way, which is one of the designations by which Christians were, were called at that time. Maybe he wanted to know more. Um, we're told that when he called Paul to talk with him and Drusilla, he listened to Paul as he talked about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, can you picture the three of them? Maybe kind of in a, a setting like this? Just, you know, conversing together? Do you think Paul was intimidated by being on Felix's turf? I wonder if Paul was ever intimidated. <laughs> you know, the guy just always, he's, he's been in so many different situations, he seems to be able to cope with whatever he's dealing with. So we're told that Paul discoursed, an interesting word, you know, he didn't chat, he didn't, um, you know, it doesn't sound much like a conversation. See, it sounds more like a lecture. Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, isn't that fascinating? These three central ideas, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Think about what we've seen all through the book of Acts as Paul has interacted with so many different kinds of people. He always fits the message to the people he's talking to, doesn't he? You know, in Athens, a city of intellects, he speaks as a philosopher. Um, When he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, he speaks as a Jew. When he's speaking to Romans, he he knows how how to reach them. 
always just the right focus for the people he's talking to. So why now, as he talks to Felix and Drusilla, does he choose righteousness, self-control, and judgment? You might remember that during these years, as Paul's been traveling and spreading the good news of Jesus all over the place, he's also been writing letters to the churches that he's founded. And he has written a letter to the Romans. Now, he hasn't been to Rome. He did not found that church. He wants to assure them that he will be coming to them. And he wants to be sure that since he didn't found that church, that they have the gospel straight. And so Romans, the book in the New Testament that we, this letter to the Romans, Romans is packed with theology about who Jesus is and what the implications of that are. And Paul has written that book not long before this. So all the themes and the ideas that are packed into the book of Romans are rambling around in his head. One of the central themes of the book of Romans is righteousness. Well, righteousness is a huge and extremely important theological idea, but let's, let's just try to kind of zero in on it. You see the word right in the word righteousness, right, do you? That I, I like to be right. Do you like to be right? We like to be on target. We like to be correct. Did you ever put up wallpaper? It's a lot of fun. I remember when I went to buy the wallpaper that we put up, the guy at the wallpaper store said to me, don't do this with your husband. It's very bad for marriage. (laughs) When you're putting up wallpaper, it's a really good idea to get it straight. (laughs) And there is a really slick tool to do that. It's an old, old tool that's referred to in the, New, in the Old Testament, and it's called a plumb line. Have you ever used one? It, uh, if you don't know what that is, it's a piece of string, so simple. Piece of string, and at the bottom of the string is a weight. And so you take the string, and you um, take a piece of chalk, and get that string all chalked up all the way down from top to bottom. And then one person holds the end of the string at the top of, by the ceiling. The other person holds it still. You know, you're holding it against the wall. The other person holds the weight still. And then you take, I don't know, you've got to have another hand. You take the string and you pull it back from the wall and let it go. And magically, you've got this white line all the way down the wall. It's a very ingenious, simple tool. The idea of righteousness is that there's a standard. There's a a straight line, if you will. God's standard is perfection. If you're righteous, you're right with him, and your life lines up with the standard. There's a kind of a problem, though, and the problem is that we can't meet the standard because of sin. 
In Romans 3.10, we're told, there is no one righteous, not even one. Fortunately, there's a solution. The solution is Jesus. One of my favorite words in scripture is the word but. Look at it in this um, verse. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the whole Old Testament points to this. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So because of Jesus, through faith in him, we are declared righteous in God's sight because the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to us. You know, I'm no financial wizard. Ask my husband. But I know what a balance sheet is. You know, on a balance sheet, you have assets and liabilities, right? If you had a spiritual balance sheet for your life, before you have a relationship with Jesus... You know what your assets are? Zero. Zero. There's nothing that we can bring. There's no righteousness in ourselves. Our assets are zero. And you know what our liabilities are? A heart black with sin. This is not a good balance sheet. When I step into faith in Jesus... He crosses out my sin, and he crosses it out by covering it with his blood shed on the cross. And he puts his righteousness under my assets in that column. He credits his righteousness to us. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Astonishing. Doesn't mean that at that moment we become perfect. From that moment on, our lives become a process of learning to live into the righteousness that has been credited to us. So, it's big theological stuff that Paul presents to Felix and Drusilla, isn't it? Talks about righteousness because he knows they're not living righteously. And he wants to offer them a life that's full and free and rich. Then he goes on and he talks about self-control. Well, the Greek word here means the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. Hmm. Remember what we heard about Felix? Married three times, seduced his wife away from her husband, and by the way, when that happened, she was 15 or 16 years old. History tells us that she was a very beautiful woman. Paul doesn't mince any words, does he? He kind of goes for the jugular. Let me tell you about righteousness, Felix. Now let me tell you about self-control, of which you do not have any. And then he talks about the judgment to come. How many of us have the courage to talk about that? Jesus did. He talked about a day in the future when 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Is it loving to talk to somebody like this? Is it, is it loving to tell a person that without Jesus he's going to hell? Is it, is it loving to be more concerned about a person's um, feeling that he's okay, you know, not ruffling his feathers, not disturbing him versus telling him the truth? So, we see that Paul, in talking about righteousness, offered Felix and Drusilla a new way to live their lives. In talking about self-control, he pointed out their selfish focus on themselves and their own needs. In talk about, talking about judgment, he clarified where they're going if they stayed on the same road. How's, how does Felix react? He's scared. <laughs> no wonder he's scared, right? We're told, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. You know, this is really a tragic moment. Because at this moment, the pendulum could swing either way. Felix could say, I get it. I repent. I believe. But instead, he decided to cut off the conversation until a more convenient time. And he walked away from what seems obviously to be the conviction that he was feeling. And we have no indication, in spite of the fact that Felix continued to have conversations with Paul, we have no indication that he ever came to belief. Let me just say, if any of you are playing the Felix card, listening, sensing the truth of what you hear about Jesus, feeling that, that pull in your heart, but you're waiting to make a decision to follow him, maybe until a more convenient time, let me just urge you to make that decision today. Every day you wait makes it more likely that you will hesitate the next time. And your heart gets harder. Talk to your table leader. Talk to me. Talk to somebody that you know that follows Jesus. And let us walk with you into that new righteousness, that new life of freedom. And if you have made that choice to follow Jesus, I can't help but wonder... If, if Paul were talking to me today, where would he put his finger in my life? You know, what would he say? You need to pay attention to this. I've thought a lot about that this week. And maybe that's not a bad idea to consider that. 
One more thing I observed about, the, about this story about Paul. He just never quits, you know? Whether his audience is a rowdy mob of Jews or the Jewish leaders or a Roman governor and his wife, in every situation he finds a way to talk about Jesus. When you think about it, why would he bother with Felix, who's treating him so badly? He shouldn't be under guard and without freedom. It's been clear from his trial that he is not guilty of anything. And this guy just keeps him there without any recourse. He's just too weak to make the decision to release Paul because he knows the Jews will be mad if he does. If you were Paul, would you care about Felix's eternal destiny? I mean, what does he deserve? Paul's like Jesus, though. Jesus, who is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think about my acquaintances. I think about my friends, people that I know, family members who do not know Jesus. And I must ask myself if I care enough about them to make them as uncomfortable as Paul made Felix. Is it worth it? Is it worth taking that risk? So I conclude with questions for you to ponder. Have you made the decision to follow Jesus? Or are you waiting for a more convenient time? And do you love your family members and friends enough to tell them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? Let's pray. God, we see the courage of Paul. We see the way that he depended on your spirit to give him the words, to give him the demeanor, to lead him, not only in what he did, but in how he thought, even how he felt. And we ask you, Lord, to make us people who are single-minded, as Paul was. Think about our memory verse. Consider my life of no value to myself, but it's all about Jesus. That's pretty foreign to most of us, that single-mindedness. So I pray that we would grow in that direction, that we would fall so much in love with you that we would be overwhelmed by your presence and your leading and the fullness of walking with you. Thank you for crediting righteousness to me. How amazing. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.